0: Welcome to the Replay Value Podcast, where we deep dive into the movies we all love to watch over and over again. I'm Phil, joined by my brother from the same mother, our co-host on the West Coast, Warren.
1: What's up, bro? In this episode, we're going to talk about the animated family adventure comedy, Pixar's Finding Nemo. Now, the plot of this film after Nemo, a clownfish, is captured by a diver in the Great Barrier Reef, his father, Marlin, and a regal blue tang, Dory, set out to find him and bring him home.
0: I love this movie when I saw it uh, the first time. I'm a f- huge fan of Pixar films, as many of us are. But now that I have kids and Disney Plus, I have seen this movie about a thousand times. But I love it. It's g- immensely high replay
1: value. A different experience for me. Uh, I, it's a great movie, but not one that I've watched a lot. Uh, so, it, I didn't really remember a lot of it when I went back to watching it preparing for the episode, but uh, enjoyed it nonetheless.
0: I don't know. There's just something that captures kids' imagination. uh, And number one, just animation of ocean, of water is beautiful. But like it just, my kids just, there was a period where they just, it's all they wanted to watch. And I I think the ocean element and sea life, sharks, fish, it has something to do with that. But at its core, it's a great movie, great story, but it's also visually beautiful. Uh, but let's jump into the film itself, how it was the idea came to be, uh, and how it got its start.
1: Pixar Animation Studios' fifth feature film. It all starts with the writer and director, Andrew Stanton. Uh, he came up with the original story. And from what I understand, it was two things that really inspired this movie for Andrew Stanton. Uh, first being inspirations from his childhood. Uh, much like Lasseter with the toys with Toy Story uh, coming from a real place uh, in his childhood. But he he would remember seeing the fish tank, loving seeing the fish tank at the dentist office. Right when I say that, you can see how that worked its way into the movie. Uh, But uh, he would assume that the fish were from the ocean and wanted to go home. So that was where that idea started to to gestate from.
0: I can relate to that because when I take my kids into their pediatrician, there is a fish tank there and that's like their favorite thing to do. They, when they, before they go in, they want to see the fish. And when they come out before we leave, they want to say goodbye to the fish. I don't know if they have the, Hey, let's free them in the ocean connotation, but yeah, that's just, (laughs) I can see why as a kid, he uh, latched onto that because my kids do the same thing.
1: And the second thing uh, that that really inspired the story was uh, a visit to six flags where he saw, uh, the, uh, underwater world there and thought how great it would look, uh, uh, animated if they could bring it to life on screen.
0: And if I read correctly, that was in 1992 when he saw that, which you have to think this is three years before toy story. It's just, I'm glad they didn't make this movie in 1992 because the, the computer graphics would have been less than desirable to, to watch. So yeah, it's a good thing they waited. Uh, and then I also saw, this was kind of cool. I can relate to this as, as a, as a parent in, in 97, he went on a walk with his son and, and to the park, and he felt that he almost robbed himself as of an experience, uh, of a memorable experience with his son, because he was being too overprotective. I mean, you've heard the term like a helicopter parent, and I have problems myself doing that. Taking them to a playground, so I, I could. So there, there, there. You see the little sprinkles, the little seeds being planted of this story. Uh, that would become the script of Finding Nemo. It started very, very early on,
1: and that's why the movie's so relatable. Is because so many parents and and kids can relate with the storyline in the film.
0: Yeah. So you take the element of okay, the underwater. It, the, yes, it's beautiful. It's a computer animation, but then further, he was inspired by seeing a photograph of two clownfish uh, in like National Geographic or, or a magazine that were peeking out from an anemone, and he just you know. It's hard to imagine this now because Clownfish and Finding Nemo is such a big part of the zeitgeist. But I didn't know what a Clownfish was before I saw Finding Nemo, but now everyone does. So this, him seeing that he was captivated by what they look like and felt they would be a good, a great fit for an animated story.
1: Stan started writing the screenplay for this when he was in post-production on A Bug's Life. Shows you how long he'd been; these movies take to get off the ground. Uh, and after he had finally finished the story and the script, after a couple of years, uh, the production began in 2000, and it lasted two and a half years.
0: Well, what I love about Pixar and what they do is that, you know, you mentioned that he, he was working on Bugs Life. He was actually a co-director and a writer of Bugs Life. Pixar is really great about that, um, of taking their talent and before they give them the reins to direct, they work on a lot of other movies beforehand. I think he had some other credits. Uh, I want to say he may have been a writer on Toy Story as well, but he had worked on past Pixar films before he got his own story to uh, story to tell with Finding Nemo. So whenever he got his shot, uh, he, he was ready. He had it pretty much done.
1: Well, and after this, he did WALL-E uh finding dory the sequel to this of course and he's directed some uh pretty uh, uh prestigious television shows stranger things and better call Saul.
0: i did read that the better call Saul thing and i was like wow really i mean but
1: yeah, great director me.
0: great director but I, it's it's so i love it with like you know with a tv show it's pretty much the showrunner the executive producer runs it and you always get like this the talent as a director to step in and do an episode but i, I never would have guessed that uh Pixar alum would have done something like Better Call Saul. That was pretty cool.
1: Yeah, and another thing Pixar is great about is they plan their characters years in advance. Nemo first appeared as a stuffed toy in Monsters, Inc. in 2001.
0: Yeah, it just goes to show like, how long these movies do take to get done. I mean, they probably turn them around faster now. I mean, there's a new Pixar, or Disney CG film every year at this point, but... Back then, I mean, they were really crafted carefully. It took years to get done, which is why you saw that uh, reference
1: so early. Kind of surprised how small the animation team was. It fluctuated between 28 and 50 people, depending on what stage of production they were in.
0: That is surprising, especially when you think uh, you hear I think when we did Lion King and I, I, the number escapes me, but I felt like it was, was like
1: 400 something.
0: I don't think it was that many. I, th- I do think it was like 150 to 200. Maybe it was more. Maybe it was 400. But yeah, it was hundreds of. Uh, of animators to try to and they they were against the deadline it was a little different but to that point the artists and animators that worked on it i mean they really took the the job seriously they wanted to learn the material they would they went scuba diving they visited aquariums which you know makes sense to get inspiration they received lectures on fish biology and oceanography i mean they really tried to immerse themselves in that environment because up to this point there had never been a computer animated film that had wanted, that captured the ocean and sea life, uh, marine life in the way that this film did.
1: Yeah. That was a John Lasseter's insistence. He's like, there's no way you can make a movie about the ocean and not know it. Yeah. You, uh, you never can do enough research. And you, so uh, you get enough research, you find enough truthful things. And it's some of the best parts of your movie is what he said. And, but uh, it's funny the, the the look and feel of the underwater world was essential to the movie's success, but the animators initially did too good of a job. It, it when they did it frame by frame, it looked too real, and then they had it, it surprisingly it had to dial it back a little bit.
0: I I think about that now whenever I watch like something like Moana. It's like the water and the hair is just like it's incredible. I mean, it just it blows your mind how great. They have teams of animators. Just that just work on hair and water. That's all they do. And they can make it look very real, but they they don't want to do that. There has to be that uh, that you don't want to go dip too far into the uncanny valley. There has to you have to know you're watching an animated film.
1: That's probably one of the reasons they did sculptures uh, models to help design the characters that helped them render the design and would make it so specific. So that would aid the animation uh, and making it more consistent frame to frame. I mean, you're going frame to frame like that in making a movie like this, there's a lot of back and forth between the production or the creative teams, uh, the animators and the director trying to perfect things and get it just right. And that's why these kind of movies take so long to make.
0: Discussing the music of Finding Nemo, one of my favorite scores in any Pixar film, this was actually the first Pixar film where they did not rely on the talents of Randy Newman to do the score so they went to his cousin thomas newman instead <laughs> so they kept it in the family <laughs>
1: um
0: but you know if you think about you know thomas newman's previous works shawshank redemption uh what he did with wall-e the green mile american beauty his scores have this ethereal wonder to them that you and you need that stylistically to match the ocean setting Randy newman's great he, he and he fits Toy Story, Monsters, Inc., the, you know, those other Pixar films, but I can see why they they pivoted slightly uh, to, to Thomas Newman uh, for Finding Nemo. When I saw that, um, you know, the connection, of course, of the, them being the cousins, Thomas and Randy Newman, it made me think of like, man, that's just crazy that that family, they had two of them are, you know, Oscar winning composers. And I was like, and so... Just real briefly, um, I do want to tell you that um, their dad, Alfred Newman or Thomas Newman's dad uh, Alfred Newman, he has won nine Oscars for best score and had 45 nominations. Wow yeah, that entire family of the Newmans that which is you know the Thomas Newman's dad, Alfred, he, he has a sister Maria, two uncles Lionel and Emile, cousin Randy, and then a first cousin once removed Joey, between all of that family, of the Newmans, they're the, one of the most decorated families in Oscar history. They have got 95 nominations between them. So I did, I was, I just couldn't believe that, that, um, that they had that much success. Uh, uh, one call out and real quickly, his brother David Newman was another. He did the soundtracks for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, The Mighty Ducks, and Coneheads, among many others. Oh, yes, oh, I mean oh. this family has done. Holy
1: dude, you're you're blowing my mind. Yeah, a
0: widespread array of scores uh, from films that we love between that family.
1: Before we move on, Pixar is so great at referencing and spoofing things in pop culture and other hit movies. And there's uh, some of the films that they spoof in Finding Nemo, uh, Psycho, The Birds, uh, The Shining, Bill and Ted, Terminator 2, Pulp Fiction, Fight Club, Shrek, Ocean's Eleven, Memento, and Dude, Where's My Car?
0: Wow. I never would have... Yeah, some of them are more obvious than others, like The Shining... Uh, And Psycho when Darla comes in. So, yeah, I get that.
1: Yeah, there's some of them you really feel in the movie, like the Bill and Ted one. Uh, And then the references where they reference other movies, the Jaws and the Shawshank. You really feel that at moments in the film, particularly the Shawshank. They play the music that's kind of reminiscent of Shawshank. The
0: Thomas Newman score. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, The film uh, also references the Gold Rush, a 1925 Charlie Chaplin film. Uh, Pinocchio. Song of the South from 1951, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea in 1954. So they really pay tribute to some of the old Hollywood films of yesteryear. And we'll shift to the stars of the picture.
2: All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up.
1: A decorated ensemble star cast, two Oscar winners, two Oscar nominees, three Emmy winners, and two Emmy nominees. Uh, and over a, a half a dozen star names, uh, just a, a lot, a lot of talent in this movie.
0: Yeah, this would, uh, would be, I would say, you know, Toy Story had some big names in it. Monsters Inc. did too, but this is, I would say one of the early star studded casts of, um, Pixar films in the sense of who they brought to the table. And I guess you got to start at the top of the call sheet with Albert Brooks.
1: Yeah, as Marlon, Nemo's dad, uh, the clownfish. This wasn't his peak. His peak has got to be broadcast news, his uh, sole Oscar nomination up to this point. And Andrew Stanton said his casting saved the movie. Uh, he was his first choice to play Marlon.
0: I can see why he would say that. I mean, the heart of the film is with Marlon, that journey he goes on. And yes, you know, he gets a, a lot of help along the way, but uh, you we get to this in the recastings. But that was my most difficult recasting just because how do you replace Albert Brooks? I mean, you go on that journey of losing your son and finding him again with that character, and that's that's a that's a tough role to pull off.
1: Yeah, Albert Brooks pulls it off, and he's not just a great actor. One of the surprising things I came across: he's written and directed seven feature films. A really good really? one, use, which I really yeah, I was so ah. surprised, like whoa, holy shit, he re- directed seven features. But he was born in Beverly Hills, raised in a showbiz family. He actually went to Beverly Hills High School with Richard Dreyfus and Rob Reiner.
0: I'm Richard Dreyfus.
1: <laughs> I don't want to wear the damn mask!
0: <laughs> a theme of 2020, uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, but before this, he had uh, six TV show credits and appeared on SNL before making his feature film debut in Taxi Driver in 1976. Wow. Uh, was also in ter- Terms of Endearment and Out of Sight. Uh, a great Soderbergh film.
0: Oh, man. I'd... Man, that's that's true. Yeah, I forgot about those credits. It's just, you know, I hate to keep bringing it up because being a father, just because I've seen Nemo so much, I I associate him with this role, but he has had so much prior success.
1: Yeah, and even after this, he had a lot of success. He was in This Is 40, uh, Concussion, Drive, where he played a villain, if you remember that. interesting turn For Albert Brooks, uh, A Most Violent Year, and of course, the sequel, Finding Dory, in in 2016. What he really liked about it was the idea of playing a clownfish that wasn't funny. You know, that that has a deconstructionist aspect to it.
0: I believe I'd read that uh, Stan loved that aspect of it, too, and he would just have him record outtakes of bad jokes so that they could use it for the movie. (laughs) <laughs> so it just, it's just like that's just a great little character quirk in there it's just a clownfish it's not funny because of course you know that that's that's how he would be
1: it might be a lot of fun for a comedian to do because you have the pressure to be funny so now you get to just play with not being funny uh, mm-hmm. i'm sure that's kind of a refreshing thing to do and he probably hadn't gotten to do that before i mean how many times she asked not to be funny and moving on down DeGeneres' Dory. Uh, this wasn't quite her peak which it started Right after this, though, uh, her daytime talk show, which started in 2003 and has been running over 17 years, uh, but this was her first role that was uh, where the the it was written specifically uh, with her in mind. It was tailored to her. Uh, Stanton got the idea to cast her uh, uh, after seeing an episode of Ellen where she changed the subject five times in one sentence. You,
0: you're you're saying the TV show Ellen, the series that ran from 94 to 98, which confusingly yes, yeah people called her talk show Ellen as well so she had two shows with the same name one was a sitcom one was completely different so that kind of threw me for a loop there at first but just looking at the, at the character though it was originally supposed to be a male role uh, a male regal blue tang and after seeing uh, Ellen DeGeneres uh, on tv that's when he's like this is a perfect fit we got to go with her
1: she had some Memorable movie roles before this: Doctor Dolittle, Coneheads, and she was in Ed TV, which I—that's a personal favorite of mine. I love Ed TV.
0: McConaughey, right?
1: Yeah. Well, she plays a TV executive in that. She's, um, she's really great. Nice. Yeah. And of course, after this, we mentioned her daytime talk show already, but she—her one of the big things she did is she hosted the Oscars in 2014. A very memorable uh hosting performance. It's probably in the lexicon of the great. Uh, Oscar host of all time. And she reprised her role in, in the, the sequel in 2016, Finding Dory, uh, and appeared as herself on Big Bang Theory. So she's still acted here and there. But uh, th- I, I got to say, this is probably her her greatest uh, or most successful movie she's been in.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was a wild, wildly successful movie, so I can see why. But she was so good in it that they essentially took a throwaway line from the film about you know her thinking about what what happened to her parents and spinning that off into a movie where she is the main character. So if you had a lesser voice actor step into this role, it would have been eh, maybe a good performance. But she warranted, she did so good, she warranted her own movie
1: with it. So good. In fact, that is why, before we move on, Ellen DeGeneres as Dory is my MVP. She gives the most valuable performance uh, and it's just a lovable, optimistic character that's aloof. And, and in some ways, for lack of a better word, is an idiot. Uh, but but uh, that, that's what makes her performance so good. Because in lesser hands, it could be an annoying character. Misa Jaja Binks. You know, you could go maybe that direction with it. But Ellen DeGeneres is so great with the character. She brings all the different shades and, and colors that you need to paint with. Uh, to bring this character to life, and it's so vulnerable, so alive, and uh, she steals the show. It's it's the most valuable performance in the movie.
0: A worthy choice. I mean, personally, uh, I would have gone with Brucey the shark, but no, I'm just kidding. There's so many great. There's so many great characters, but. Um, given that Marlon can't get to where he needs to go without her. I mean, yes, he is the heart of the movie. The, you, you the arc of the story is with him, but without Dory, she is the, uh, the catalyst for that change, uh, that Marlon goes through. I'd say her and, and crush kind of seeing the example he has with his son, but it, it's mainly Dory and what, and his journey, Going on that journey you with see, her. See, I,
1: I disagree. I mean, I I think the most heartwarming moments come from Dory, uh, and that's where I feel feel like she's really the soul of the film, for my experience. But you've seen it a lot more than me, so perhaps I should just defer to you on this one.
0: Yeah, you should, uh, and I'll, I'll explain why when we get to our best scenes. But uh, you know, you're you're not wrong. There are a lot of great emotional moments with Dory, uh, but I think that just speaks to how great of a film this is that you get that from from so many sides.
1: Alexander Gould as Nemo, uh, titular character. This was his... Well, eh, not quite his peak. Is he going to be in Weeds, man? I love him in Weeds. He's so oh, good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's he's great. Uh, before this, though, uh had some guest spots in Malcolm in the Middle uh, and Freaks and Geeks. Uh, but he's been acting since he was two years old. Oh, my so, God. I can't imagine. Kid's been doing it forever.
0: Uh, yeah, unfortunately, when Finding Dory, the sequel came out in 2016. Yes, Nemo is in that film, but he had... You know, he had, I guess you could say, aged out of that role in the 13 years that had passed since then. Uh, he did, however, voice one of the truck drivers near the end of the film in the climax where Hank and Dory steal the truck uh, from two workers. Uh, he has actually uh, got a little cameo in there uh, as one of the drivers.
1: Got to mention Willem Dafoe as Gil, the Moorish Idlefish, leader of the Tank Gang. Uh Defoe his character's voice on Earl Copen, uh, the character he played in Animal Factory. Uh, so he, in some way, reprised the role. I feel like he'd be a really good fit for for playing this fish. And um, I really love the fact they were able to get Defoe in this movie. Uh, he's been so great for so long. Uh, any movie that is just lucky to have Defoe.
0: Yeah, it really is. And I would say that's one of those with uh him and then you know uh, some of the other actors they got to step into these minor roles that's what elevated it to get that star power there to kind of support the with the supporting cast uh so I love Willem Dafoe that's great
1: yeah uh, yeah he was uh some of my favorite movies he's probably what, most known to the movie masses from Spider-Man you know playing the green goblin but I yeah. mean to live in uh die in LA in 85 one of our dad's favorite movies that was his He had such a high replay value with him. Boondock Saints. Platoon in 86. Shadow of the Vampire in 2001. And, of course, after this, man, he has been just been in so many hits for so many years. Uh, John Wick, uh, Lighthouse. And he had two Oscar nominations in the last three years. So the guy has just been on a roll. uh, uh, Just just, uh, uh, one of our great actors.
0: Uh, another big actor that they had uh, step into one of the the minor roles, kind of like the, in the Tank Gang, was Allison Janney as Peach the Starfish. I mean, what a get to to, to, to get her cast.
1: Yeah, along with uh, uh, Brad Garrett as Bloat, uh, and you had Stephen Root as Bubbles, Jeffrey Rush as Nigel, uh, who plays quite a critical role for Nemo's uh, fate. Uh, the, the 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 Pelican, who who's just uh, without him, uh, none of the Things don't quite come together uh, there in the third act.
0: Yeah, there was going to be a more of a, a relationship there, more of a comedic scene with Nigel and Gerald, the two Pelicans. One's neat, one's dirty, kind of an odd couple type of thing. It just didn't work into the script that way. So they did get some big actors to to fill those shoes, though. On uh, you know, like we said, for the Tank Gang and for the, some of the other parts too. I love Steven Rudis Bubbles because it's like. His only lines in the movie are bubbles. It's like they have this great character actor to do that. It's like what's well, so funny?
1: Yeah, he's so good. I mean, maybe in an office space, he's only got like two or three lines, but how memorable that's is true. He that? That's that just f- shows you how awesome of an actor he is that he can take such something with so little and make so much out of it. Uh, Elizabeth Perkins as uh, Coral probably my favorite movie. Ever. I love her in about last night. She's just uh, so great in that film, uh, but she's got a great body of work. She's been done a lot of great movies outside of that. And a lot, been a lot of good. She was also in weeds. Uh, weeds as a yeah. Of fact, one of I was going to yeah. say that. Uh, yeah.
0: Right? Uh, I also recently saw her in sharp objects, another great TV show that she's in. So yeah, she's done. She's, a great actress.
1: Yeah, Rob Lowe in his uh, audio book, his uh, memoir, said that Elizabeth Perkins single-handedly gave the best audition he has ever seen uh, for about last night. And if you watch that movie, she really owns that role. I'm sorry I'm harping about that movie, but she's just so good in it. Uh, Eric Bana as anchor, uh, the Hammerhead Shark, uh, and uh, uh, Andrew Stanton, the director, uh, as uh, as Crush.
0: We talked about this in 2001, A Space Odyssey, uh, how Stanley Kubrick had hired... Uh, and, uh, a composer to do the score. And he took the music that he had that the famous score that you have now of classical classical works, um, for the music. And that was just kind of a placeholder. He ended up using that for the film, uh, very famously, uh, something similar with Andrew Stanton, crush. He just recorded those lines while he was laying on Brad Bird's couch in his office, Brad Bird, the director from the Incredibles, another Pixar alum, uh, and they just, they liked how it sounded in the film. And they, instead of recasting another actor, they just kept Stanton's voiceover work.
1: Probably cheaper too.
0: Yeah. Another thing that was probably cheaper <laughs> is uh, his son, Crush's son Squirt was Nicholas Bird, which was Brad Bird's son, which, you know, yeah, the nepotism plays there, of course. But yeah, Brad Bird was playing a tape of, a tape recorder of his son in the office and Stanton heard it. And it's like, there's my Squirt and put him in the movie. All right, let's move on to the stats and accolades of Finding Nemo. Released May 30th of 2003 on a budget of $94 million. Opening weekend would make a good chunk of that back uh, domestically. Uh, opening, it would uh, get $70.2 million in about 3,400 theaters. Some other tops of the box office that week. Number two was Bruce Almighty. Number three, Italian Job. And number four, Matrix Reloaded, Warren.
1: Uh, <laughs> boo. Oh, come on.
0: You loved it back uh, then. The fight
1: scenes are good, but yeah, yeah come on. The movie well, of,
0: course, like... of course, Of course, uh, Finding Nemo opened at number one. Uh, domestically, it would go on to pull in 380.8 million. Worldwide, 940.3 million. However, that does include about 70 million from a 2012 3D re-release. So a couple more re-releases, it'll probably break the billion bargain.
1: Well, they, the reason they released in 3D is because of, obviously, the Avatar's craze. Uh, oh, yeah. With, with, they did a lot of 3D re-releases, but Disney had a lot of success with the Lion King re-release in 3D, and that's what made them decide to do Finding Nemo.
0: But to be fair, uh, seeing a, uh, an Ocean film... Uh, you know, with water in three D. Oh, I would have loved. I oh should,
1: man, I kind of uh, wish that. that, that this yeah, is a
0: movie shit. where I feel like it's yes, the Avatar three D craze is expected, but this is a, a film that was probably worthy. Well, don't only get there.
1: off track here? But the Avatar sequels are going to be underwater, and that's going to be in three D. So we're going to get our fix at some point. Yeah. Uh, the box office rank Finding Nemo had for the year two thousand three was number two, but it did become the highest grossing animated movie at the time. Uh, until Toy Story 3. Uh, Home Media was released on VHS and DVD in November 2003, Blu-ray December 2012, and 4K Blu-ray December 10th, 2019. It became and still is the best-selling DVD title of all time. It currently has sold 41-plus million copies worldwide, and as of 2015, last recorded date still holds that record.
0: Yeah, it's a it's like I think close to seven hundred million dollars or something like that that it's made from D V D sales. It's it's insane. Uh, did you look um did you look to see what movie was number one for two thousand and three to try to back up a little bit? Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's Lord of the Rings with Throne of the King.
0: That's right. <laughs> yeah. I said it, you, do, you do a Lord of the Rings shout out there.
1: Come on. Yeah, and it's probably going to keep that title because uh, with the uh, emergence of streaming apps and with Netflix and HBO Max and Amazon Prime, uh, no one's buying DVDs now. So it's probably going to hold that title forever.
0: Well, did you, uh, from a, a number of sales point of view, number two is Cars, and it's pretty far behind. Number three and, in in sales uh, and in dollars, it's number two is Spider Man, uh, from two thousand and two, the Tobey Maguire. So yeah, I don't think anyone's gonna get Finding Nemo. It's they.
1: That was on. remember the heyday of DVDs was like what uh, the the late nineties to the uh, to the uh, mid to late aughts. With a running time of hundred minutes, uh, just flies by. Of course, it has a G rating. Was the highest grossed G movie ever until Toy Story three. It has a body count. Pretty high here, man. Uh, various reports, but I got uh, 402 deaths, two on screen, two fish, and 400 off screen. Coral eaten by the barracuda and 399 unborn eggs.
0: Oh, gosh. I thought <laughs> I thought you were talking about the krill for a second that the, the whale eats. Well, it's no.
1: Mar- Marlin's unborn children that are eaten by the barracuda.
0: Marlin and coral, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. And the yeah. Coral
0: herself, of course. Yeah.
1: Yeah, of course. Um, and this is also the first Pixar film to show blood. Where when Dory, Dory gets, gets hit in the blade. nose.
0: Yeah, with a goggles.
1: Yeah, I love it when Bruce's eyes turn black. It's oh, so a good. Crazy. Not to step on best seeds, but I love that moment. Scores of the film Rotten Tomatoes, 99%.
0: Totally worthy. Whoa. It's a great film. Oh, it's yeah. so good.
1: Cinema score, A+. plus. Uh, bringing home a report card of straight A so far. Dude, good Lord. Uh, IMDb, uh, 8.1 out of 10. Uh, and a Metascore critic, 90, which indicates universal acclaim. Uh, Roger Ebert gave it four out of four stars, saying, quote, one of those rare movies where I wanted to sit in the front row and let the images wash out to the edges of my field division, unquote.
0: That's beautiful. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is. It's just It's that. Gorgeous of a film to watch, and then this again the story is just so good too. It's got it's the complete package of the film, in my opinion. Yeah.
1: Awards of the film, Oscar winner for best animated feature, the first Pixar film and the first Disney film to ever win the award, and the third winner of that category ever because it was a, a new award. They just created it a couple of years prior.
0: Yeah, they created it in 2001, but the first one wasn't given out until the 2002 ceremony. So that, it kind of threw me for a loop. I was like, how did Toy Story not win? What What is this? Ah. Toy Story did win an Oscar along with uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. They would give out these special awards for per- mm-hmm. these you know unique productions. And typically, it was a Walt Disney film like Snow White, that would, that would do these am- amazing things, but then they finally made it its own category.
1: Rightly yeah, so. Yeah, Toy Story got its due. I mean, Toy Story 3 and Toy Story 4 would go on to win this award. So they, they, Pixar
0: <laughs> has won a lot of these awards. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, also had three nominations for Best Screenplay, Best Score, and Best Sound Editing. Yeah,
0: Best Score by Thomas Newman, we, we talked about earlier. Uh, that lost to, I um, uh, think, of Lord of the Rings, actually. The Return of the mm-hmm. King, it lost to that. So, uh,
1: Also won the Saturn Award for Best Film, had a Golden Globe nomination, two BAFTA nominations, and was an AFI Movie of the Year selection, made their top 10. Another 46 wins and 59 nominations.
0: Uh, music of the Year for 2003, the Grammy Record of the Year, Clocks by Coldplay. I mean, this was peak that Coldplay. One? Wow. Yeah, Rick, yeah, it did. Uh, this was peak Coldplay, I mean, this is when they were rising into the stratosphere uh, with um, with that album. So, uh, And then the Billboard Hot 100 for 2003, the number one song of the year, Into Club by 50 Cent, who had four songs in the top 100. That was definitely peak fitting.
1: Other movies in 2003, top at the box office, number one, previously mentioned Lord of the Rings Return of the King, Uh, which holds the rare double crown as the top of the box office and the Oscar winner for Best Picture. Also holds another rare distinction, uh, won 11 Oscars tied with Titanic and Ben-Hur as the most Oscars won by a single film.
0: Jeez, such a good movie, good franchise. And then they ruined it with The Hobbit, but it was great then.
1: Yeah. Uh, Other movies of the year, uh, Bruce Almighty, Matrix Reloaded, Kill Bill Volume 1, and Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl. And Razzie winner f- for Worst Picture uh, is uh, G Geely. G- 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 what the fuck? What is that movie? The, the f- that that
0: stinking <laughs> turd like with G- Affleck G- G- and J-Lo? G- yeah, it's a, a piece of shit with
1: uh, And no Lopez. disrespect to Affleck no. or J-Lo. They're great artists in their own right. You make enough movies, some of them are going to suck. And this one is uh, on the all-time list of stinkers, uh, courtesy of Columbia Pictures.
0: Yeah, this one had, like, man, it was... Probably for a solid decade, there people remember this movie as like one of the worst of all time. It was yeah, running joke. It is. People have forgotten about it now, is it, but yeah. I think
1: even Pacino's in a scene or two. Oh, I just, I, I, I need the Men in Black. Uh, I need this erased from my memory. Oh, just awful. Uh, TV of the year, uh, top rated Nielsen scripted TV shows. Uh, number one CSI with fifteen point nine million viewers, followed by Friends with thirteen point six. Emmy winner, best comedy series, Arrested Development in its first season. You're a huge fan of that show.
0: That's a great show. I mean, Timeless. If we did a podcast about TV shows with replay value, that would be uh, near the
1: top. It's very good. Emmy winner, best drama series, The Sopranos.
0: I thought you were going to say 24. I was like, come on, 24. <laughs>
1: no, I think uh, 24 won for that great fifth season. Day, if you remember, oh, that was yeah. so good. Oh, uh, but *The Sopranos* was overdue. It should have won more than it did, and it finally did this season. Yeah, *West
0: Wing* kept it out for a long time, right? If I recall.
1: Yeah. Uh, another big winner at the Emmys that year was *Angels in America*. It won mm. seven of seven uh, major Emmy nominations. No show had ever swept the major categories like that.
0: Yeah, Emma Roberts, uh, Al Pacino. Yeah, a lot of great. And
1: Meryl Streep.
0: Yeah, Meryl Streep. Yeah, I forgot about that.
1: I don't know if Emma Roberts is in it, is she? Not Emma
0: Roberts. Fuck Emma Thompson. Yeah
1: yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's got a lot of heavy, a lot of heavyweights. Uh, prices of 2003: gas was a a gallon. A movie ticket was six dollars and three cents. Uh, average rent was six hundred and two dollars. A new house cost one hundred and eighty-seven thousand dollars. All on an average annual income of forty-five thousand. Events in 2003, the United States invades Iraq and captures Saddam Hussein. The Department of Homeland Security begins operations, and sky marshals are used on uh, aircraft following 9-11. Uh, the do Not call list becomes operational, and Arnold Schwarzenegger is elected the governor of California.
0: Oh, the governor, yeah.
1: Yeah. Cue the
0: obligatory terrible Schwarzenegger impersonations. <laughs> All right, let's talk about our best scenes and lines from Finding Nemo, Visually a very stunning film, as we've mentioned numerous times. But there's also a lot of great moments of heart, a lot of great moments of action, comedy, uh, the whole uh, cornucopia of emotions. Let's jump right into it with your runner-up,
1: Warren. Well said. Uh, My runner-up is when Nigel the Pelican tells Nemo the story of his dad fighting the ocean looking for him. And it inspires and motivates Nemo to clog up the aquarium uh to have this the, the the courage and the bravery and the strength to do it
2: Nemo where's Nemo I've got to speak with him What what is it
1: Your dad's been fighting the entire ocean looking for you My father oh, really? really Oh yeah
2: he's traveled hundreds of miles He's been battling sharks and jellyfish sharks? all sorts of That can't be him Are you sure What was his name uh, some sort of sport fish or something tuna uh, Trout Marlin That's it Marlin the little clownfish from the reef It's my dad He he's t- I heard he took on three. Three? Three! three. three. three sharks? There's got to be 4,800 teeth! You see, kid, after you were taken by Diver Dan over there, your dad followed the boat you were on like a maniac. Really? He's swimming, and he's swimming, and he's giving it all his got. and then three gigantic sharks capture him, and he blows him up, and then dives, starts to feet. fiend it's chased by a monster with huge teeth. He ties the steam into a rock. Once he get for a reward, he gets to battle an entire jellyfish forest. But now he's riding with a bunch of sea turtles on the East Australian current. And the word is he's headed this way right now to Sydney.
0: That's good. I like that. Yeah. The, the courage that he's heard of his dad, the tale of his dad, uh, Helping and coming to get him is inspired him. That's good. I never really. It's, either... it's
1: a very moving scene. I, I found it very moving because you feel the love that the that Marlon has for his son. It's you just. It's so well represented in that moment, and you you see the legend of Marlon growing, kind of to ridiculous proportions in some extent.
0: <laughs> well, I, it's more the determination that crosses over into Nemo. I, I like that. You know his, where it's like, you know he's probably been like most kids a little ashamed of their dad and like, it's kind of embarrassing and whatnot. And, and now he has like, you know, he's inspired by him. So that's good. I like that. I never, never didn't even have it on my list, but I like it. Uh, my runner up is the scene with the shark support group with Brucey and his butt. I mean,
1: <laughs> you know, good. it's just
0: the, the misdirection that you have whenever you think that the camera pans and you see Brucey talking to Marlon and Dory and you think they're, they're going to get, they're a snack. They're, they're gone. They're, they're done. I, and then it's like this, you know, this whole, you know, intervention and uh, support group about fish not being food. And I mean, it, it's just a wonderful scene. And just that, um, you know, the subverting of expectations and, and taking it in the, the, the area they did. Just it makes you laugh because you're not expecting it.
2: it. The meeting has officially come to order. Let us all say the pledge. I
1: am a nice shark, not a mindless eating machine. If I am to change this image, I must first change myself. Fish are friends, not food. Except stinking dolphins. Dolphins? Yeah, they think they're so cute. Oh, look at me. I'm a flippin' little dolphin. Let me flip for you. I know something. The shark pledge is my runner-up best line. Ah. Is okay. that 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 which includes the Fisher Friends Not Food, which is repeated a few times throughout the film. So don't kind of kind of shift in there. That is my runner-up best line is is the shark uh pledge monologue.
0: No, I can see it. Yeah, I mean that and that's a trend. I mean, often we do have our best lines in in the best scenes. Uh it's just part of it. But what was your winner for best
1: scene? My winner is when Marlon and Nemo save Dory. And it's the moment that Marlon's character has finally learned to trust his son, that he's not a a, a a baby anymore, that he's allowing his son to grow up and become an a, a adult fish.
0: That was also my winner for best scene.
1: Oh, nice.
2: What? Did we just become best friends? Yep! <laughs> Dad, I know what to do! Nemo, no! We have to go. I am not going to lose you again. Dad, there's no time. It's the only way we can save Dory. I can't do this. You're right. I know you can. Lucky Finn. Now go, hurry. Tell all the fish to swim down. Well, you heard my
0: son. Come on. And that is the true, you talked about the emotion of Nemo being inspired by uh, the story that Nigel tells about Marlon, about his dad, but that is where the, the I think the real emotion of the movie comes in is whenever, you know, he learns to let go and he trusts Nemo um, and it's like he's just gotten his son back and now he's got to let him go into this very dangerous situation, but he trusts him to do it and it's very, it's very good.
1: Well, and he he starts to be the old Marlin for a second. He's like, "No, I don't want to lose you again." And then he pauses. He's like, "You know what? Fuck it." It's literally like that moment. It's in a subtextual way, just to, uh, I, maybe not the most articulate way to contextualize that 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 that's in that scene. But that's what it, he's just like. You know what? He's got to live his life. Like, and we yeah. got to save Dory.
0: That's what it is, yeah. It's, it's he's got to live his life, and it's like my son knows what he's doing. You know, he is his own person, and, and I am going to trust him to make this choice. I mean, you don't want to do that all the time with your kids, but you know, in that in that moment, it was the right thing. It, it's got so much emotional weight behind it. It's a very powerful scene, and um, if we're in, for for an animated kids film, it, it carries a lot of emotional weight to it. So that's that. Yeah. I'm not surprised we match up there. What what were some of your honorable mentions?
1: Honorable mention is when uh, Marlon meets Dory. A boat?
2: Hey, I've seen a boat. You have? Uh-huh. And it passed by not too long ago. A white one?
1: Hi, I'm Dory. Where? Which way?
2: Oh, oh, oh. It, it went um this way. Yeah, it went this way. Follow me. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. No problem.
1: And then Marlon follows her for like 20 seconds. And then, in in hilarious fashion, we learn of Dory's short term memory loss.
2: (gasps) You quit it? What? Trying to swim here. What? The ocean isn't big enough for you or something like that? Huh? You got a problem, buddy? Huh? Huh? Do you, do you, do you? Mm-hmm. you? Want a piece of me? Yeah, yeah. Ooh, I'm scared now. What? Wait a minute. Stop following me, okay? What are you talking about? You're showing me which way the boat went. A boat? Hey, I've seen a boat. It passed by not too long ago. It, it went, um, this way. It went this way. Follow me. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What is going on? You already told me which way the boat was going. I did?
0: Which they replicate in Finding Dory.
1: You learn uh, that she has the short-term memory loss, but it's so adorable uh, in the way that it's played, and and you immediately—I don't know about you—I immediately love Dory. I, I, I just she's so such a a, a beam of of light uh, in the ocean.
0: <laughs> yeah, Marlin by himself is kind of a downer. You know, the movie wouldn't be any fun if it was just him. You have to have Dory. I mean, she is. Jar Jar Bing's done the right way, you know. Like you said, you made the example earlier. If it's done wrong, you know how bad it can be. Mm-hmm. But that's
1: right; um, It'd be annoying.
0: Yeah, this is one where it's the right kind of annoying. She's annoying only to Marlon, but she's hilarious to us.
1: Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To us, we love it. It's
0: tough to compartmentalize that 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 annoying behavior. Uh, but, you know, yeah, we love it.
1: But Marlon's still the lead because even he has a hard time being mean to her. He's like, uh, you know, and then he ultimately ends up really, you know, caring about Dory.
0: Which it's funny, actually segues into one of my honorable mentions um, is when he does get annoyed with her and the School of Moonfish show up.
1: Hey, hey, you like impressions? Mm-hmm. OK, just like in rehearsals, gentlemen
2: what are we take a guess oh oh i've seen one of those i'm a fish with a nose like a sword wait wait it's um, a swordfish oh. Oh, hey clown boy let the lady guess
0: which are voiced by john ratzenberger who has uh you know he's ham in toy story he makes uh, an appearance in every pixar film in one form or fashion uh but he i always i just love that scene whenever he you know, shape shifts into the different things and you know, makes a little game out of it, uh, and you know, gets Dory and Marlin back on track. Uh, you know, visually, it's a fun scene. I love John Ratzenberger, so that w- that was that was an honorable mention of mine. I only had one other honorable mention, and it's the post-credit scene uh, after you know you get the you know Mr. Ray and the school uh, you know <laughs> swim off, and it says the end, and then you've got the Tank Gang swimming out, and they finally. <laughs> They finally get into the ocean, and then it's just like the the comedy <laughs> of
1: in the plastic bags. <laughs> come on, Peach! You got to no, it! You got to get it! You got <laughs> <laughs> <Yes! Yes! Yes! laughs> <laughs> <sighs>
0: I had to include that as a post-credits, yeah.
1: Oh, that's great. That's so great. Uh, I'll add a couple more. Uh, The montage of when the story of Marlin fighting the ocean is passing through the ocean, and all the creatures of the ocean, all the animals are are learning of Marlin and the story of Nemo, and his legend is growing. It's good. I I love how that montage just kind of streamlines and runs together. Because
0: it it makes it believable in how it would spread and how that... And you kind of know around. in
1: that moment, this is going to be a intricate uh, to uh, Nemo finding being reunited with his father. You mm-hmm. know that that is good because it ends up being true. The Pelican and Nigel was safe, saves the day, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, there's
0: some MacGuffins and some you know very convenient twists of fate there, but it makes it believe it never doesn't do it to the point where it takes you out of the film. You buy into it.
1: Uh, except only maybe uh, the, the fact that uh, if he were to go through the piping system, that the fish, would, <laughs> the, the, no whole substance ever makes it through the treat, water treatment systems into the ocean. Like, he'd be grinded to, to you know, Nemo. Hey, we,
0: don't, we don't need to think about that. That's okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, fair fair enough. Um, and my last honorable mention is the uh, escape from the whale's belly. Because this is where Marlon learns his lesson.
2: He says it's Is gonna happen?
1: This is the lesson that will carry with him and that will ultimately, you know, I think this change in character helps him find Nemo at the end of the day and ends up helping save Dory.
0: Well, it comes in twofold. That is one very key scene there where he learns to let go in that sense and just kind of trust what's going to happen um, and, you know, and hope for the best. And the other one is whenever he is with Crush and he sees um, Squirt fly out of the uh, the stream there and he wants to, he panics and, you know, Crush is like, okay, hey, you know, just let's see what he does. And he's like, oh, it worked out. So it is twofold there in the sense that um, uh, that, that learning experience uh, but the one you mentioned is is the other vital piece of that. All right, and our best lines from the film, I will pick things up with my runner-up, which is actually by Crush, who we just talked about, uh, where he he uh, Marlon calls Crush Mr. Turtle, and Crush replies back, Whoa, dude, Mr.
1: Turtle is my father. Name's Crush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We already covered my runner-up, my winner, just to keep things moving.
2: When life gets you down, you know what you got to do? I don't want to know what you got to do. Just keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep swimming, swimming, swimming. What do we do? We swim.
0: I cannot believe that. That is also my winner.
1: Wow.
2: Again? What? Did we just become best friends?
1: Yep.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And again, not surprising because that is one that is also carried over into Finding Dory. Also
1: kind of ties to an earlier episode we did this season uh, with Days of Confused, Just Keep Living.
0: Oh, yeah. K- L-I-V-I-N. Yeah. So I, I see why, you know, you picked it there again. That that's It's said in a simple well, yeah, way. Yeah, because
1: you picked it too, duh. Well, no, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I,
0: I, I'm sorry. I see why why we picked it. Shut up. Yeah, <laughs> why we picked it? Yeah, there.
1: brilliant might think alike. All right, right. Uh, moving on to honorable mentions, and this is probably the, one of the most iconic lines from the movie, and it's repeated quite a bit from a, a gaggle of uh, what what are they? Pelicans, birds.
2: Yeah, I. I,
1: I...
0: <laughs> I almost included that, but I just didn't want to play the annoying soundbite for our listeners of the mind, mind, mind. But that was iconic when it came out. You know, everybody was doing that. The seagull.
1: It was, it's pretty funny. Yeah. The exchange, there's a lot of exchanges uh, that are great with Dory. And that's why she steals the show. But my favorite is at at the end when Dory finally finds or meets Nemo and Nemo introduces himself. And Nemo says,
2: I'm Nemo. Nemo?
1: That's a nice name. <laughs> <laughs> she's been spending the whole movie looking for this. It, it's, <laughs> it's the way that
0: they set it up because it's just like, there's a pause like, oh shit, she's going to realize it. And she's just like, and
1: she does not <laughs> But then she does it like, like another minute. Of, of later course. Yeah but, puts it together. yeah. but
0: there's a moment where it's like that it, you should have like the whole like shuffling and the you know the zach galifianakis from hangover where the formulas are showing up in front yeah, of his face there's just,
1: <laughs> there's literally a, probably a dozen honorable mentions i could have a dory doing saying things like that just laugh out loud cute and funny yeah
0: i only had two honorable mentions um one is a re- recurring line you know for a clownfish
1: he really isn't that funny it's so great when you see the two times he goes to tell a joke and you got the, with a g- group of animals gathered around smiling. And then you just see that gradually their smiles start to lose enthusiasm and their and eyes kind of cross,
0: or it was like, <laughs> 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 um, but then in, in, in true Tommy boy fashion, he nails the joke at the end, you know, when he tells it. So, uh, and then the, the last one was, uh, you just think it's kind of a kid thing early, but then Bruce shows up at the end of the film and the dad squid does the same thing. He inks everywhere when the shark shows up. So it's kind of a joke that has a little bit of a payoff there. So
1: uh, my last couple honorable mentions is uh when Marlon says, No! I didn't come this far to eat breakfast. And uh when Bruce is on his uh uh Blood uh, tirade after getting a whiff of a dory, and he busts through the door, and they have their little, the the Shining reference when he says, is Brucey! Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah, great reference That's That's very good. Moving on to Judge Bob's recasting court, where Warren and I recast the film with today's stars,
2: all rise for the Honorable Judge Bob presiding. Gentlemen, you may be seated. Recasting court. Is now in session. Counselors, we will hear arguments today for the recasting of Crush, Peach, Bloat, Gill, Nemo, Dory, and Marlon. lot to get to tonight, gentlemen, so let's get right into it. We'll start off today's docket with Crush. Phil, I believe the floor is yours.
0: Okay, for Crush, going into it, you have to have the mentality, this is a surfer, maybe a little bit stoner, so you got to have an actor that's going to sell that, uh, I don't know if it's because I've been watching a lot of SNL or a lot of the new DuckTales lately, but I went with Beck Bennett and I just hear him as Launchpad McQuack in the new DuckTales and he just got that, he just, he's a great voice actor and he could step in and do the crush role. Uh, and match the level that Andrew Stanton, the director, did for the original.
1: All right, Warren, what do you got? Wow, Beck Bennett, man, what are you, the president of his fan club? You've already used him once. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you said that.
0: I'm glad you said that because yes, I used him. I think it was in Little Shop of Horrors not too long ago, and we only get two actors yeah, like
1: two episodes ago. You ought to Beck Bennett. Kick well, right that's, I can't now, use
0: man. him anymore this season. That's my two. After two, we we can't use him again. So yeah. All right.
1: So I went a different direction and uh. I thought of Keanu Reeves.
0: <laughs> that's good. <laughs> I like that. Oh man, that's good.
1: But I, I think it's pretty obvious when you see the it's almost like the director playing crush. Uh, Andrew Stanton was doing an impersonation of this actor, Matthew McConaughey. He was born to play this role. It feels like it was written for him. Even the dialogue, the line readings, the voice inflection. It, it, I can't. I couldn't think of an actor who who better fits this character than than McConaughey.
2: All right, so Phil. Warren has just opted to buy your Happy Meal for $5,000. So how are you going to counter this? <laughs> uh, it's it's
0: a great choice. And I thought of M- uh, McConaughey at first, but then I thought about it more. And I was like, that's it wouldn't be a good fit the more I thought about. It. Not because he can't do that, but because as soon as you heard it, you'd be like, that's Matthew McConaughey. Crush is his own. Char- so no, 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 no. So Let's- what's the problem? Because he just keep swimming, man. <laughs> Doesn't work here. No. <laughs> uh, Mc- McConaughey is. <laughs> it, you don't want to. You don't want to look at that and be like, "Oh, that's McConaughey as a turtle." You want to look at Crush, the turtle, as his own character. I think it would take away. It would just take you out of the movie hearing it because it's too. It's too iconic as McConaughey. You no, to,
1: the way that scene is written, that's where you have a star show up for just one scene because it's a memorable scene uh, that gets Marlon and Dory onto its journey. I, I, I think I, I, if that, if that's again, a scene I that a you would have done
0: there. that with. That's what they would have done in the original.
2: All
1: right. All He's right. got the spirit of the character. He, cru- he would crush it. Here's the thing. We got uh,
2: seven castings. I could, go, I, I could let this go on for a while because, I mean, great arguments either way. Uh, Beck Bennett, amazing voice. Love him. Matthew McConaughey, spot on for it. I think it'd be a great casting. However, I, um, for for the sake of moving this on and simplicity of argument, Matthew McConaughey gets this one. Wait, what? All
1: right, what? all no. right, all right. Whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, my God. Complete yeah. 180. Yeah, how did you not see it, man? Just keep on swimming, That's man. whatever. All right, next
2: up on the docket here. Let's get this moving along with Peach. Make it, take it, rules. Warren, it's you.
1: Go. Well, for Peach, uh, first, I almost went with Tara Strong, one of the greatest voiceover actresses of all time and certainly the greatest of our day on the short list. Uh, she's done countless animated series, movies, video games, but ended up going with Tiffany Haddish. I want some star power in this role. And she is such a raw and and real actress, and her comedy comes from that place. And I think it would be a really refreshing uh, casting to have her play the role, because Peach is a a reactive character, and that plays to Tiffany Haddish's strengths. Her comedy, she's very much a reactive actor uh, in comedic circumstances and situations. All right, Phil, what do you got?
0: Uh, For my Peach, I went with uh, one of the the best voice actors working today, underrated, not... I don't think she's really gotten a lot of, not been used the best way in like a big motion picture yet, but that's Judy Greer. Um, she's done a, a lot of voice work. Uh, she's an archer. She was an, actually in a show my kids love, ask the story bots, but uh, a great character actress, but also
1: kind of. She in uh, No, Just she's not in DuckTales.
0: Uh, at least I don't think so. Um, but she's got a, a great voice, um, a voice for animation for 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 this type. And you look at the Peach character, it's almost a little motherly But at the same time, just a little not quite aware of things going on. Uh, When I look at Tiffany Haddish, she's like almost like like a gill. She's almost like she's sassy. She's got a lot of personality where that doesn't really fit the peach. I think about other things that Haddish has uh, done voiceover work for. Angry Birds 2. Secret Life of Pets two, and that her voice fits the sassiness character it doesn't match. Her talent Peach.
1: isn't limited to just one note. No, I'm not Even saying it that's is. What she's played it, this. She's a. Re, at the end of the day, her core talent is. Uh, she's very talented in many many ways as a comedic actress and a comedian, but she is a reactive actress. That that's one of her strengths, and that's what this character has. It may be a different fabric than what you're used to seeing her play, but Tiffany Haddish can play a lot of different uh, shades. And I I think she, she, she would absolutely pull it off.
0: I'm not saying she can't. I'm saying that this, this, you know, Alison Janney is, is a great drama actress. You don't put a comedian in the peach role. You use that for something else.
2: All right. Judy Greer takes it. Phil, well done.
0: Thank you. Moving on to bloat.
2: Phil, make it, take it. Go.
0: <laughs> Bloat, I uh, mean, the incomparable Brad Garrett playing this. And I had one name come to mind that just fits that humor the, you know, the Shark Bay koo ha ha, and then the, the, the you know, this, the, the one liners that he has that could match that Brad Garrett tone. That is Patrick Warburton all day, he's thought of it instantly, perfect fit for it.
1: Holy shit, I also went with Patrick Warburton. Nice. Again? What? Did
0: we just become best friends?
2: Not just a friend and that is because nobody else could play this role beautiful casting by both of you
1: yeah i mean there's a handful i i he's my favorite uh one of my favorite voice uh, actor i mean he's he's great in rules of engagement i loved his his take with that character but he he's so good in uh, so many different films and new and, yes, yeah
2: yeah yeah no
1: yeah i mean there, there's i i i i made up my mind i'm like When I was recasting this right from the top, I'm like, Patrick Warburton is somewhere in my movie. (laughs) I I promise (laughs) you you,
2: the world would be a better place with more Patrick Warburton in just about everything. I love that guy. Absolutely love him. All right, let's get right into Gil and make it take it rules since we had a tie there. Phil, court is still yours. All right,
0: Uh, Gil, uh, I mean, Willem Dafoe, man, he has just such an awesome voice for that type of character where it's just kind of, menacing do you trust him but he's commanding he's the leader of the tank gang so to speak uh so who better to step in than ego himself kurt russell snake plissken this is a guy where maybe you don't quite trust him at first but he's in your corner at the end of the day man he could do it
1: all right warren what do you got well i thought of steve buscemi Okay, almost went there, but uh, uh, ended up going with Michael M. Paroli from Sopranos. And I-, I wanted to lean more into the, uh, uh, you know, he- he's the leader of a gang, so I, I wanted to kind of lean into the Italian mobster element, maybe add a little more comedy to it, uh, parroting that concept within this film. Uh, it- it- but he has an avuncular quality, too, and, we're- and-, and-, and the character seen some shit. Okay, Michael M. Paroli, I think, would be able to play all that uh, rolled up uh, – into this character Gil.
0: Maybe it's just that I can't separate him from the Christopher Moltisante from the Sopranos, but just like, you know, I would never, I just, yeah, he's got the kind of the dark, I've seen some shit side of Gil that you said, but at the end of the day, he's in Nemo's corner. He maybe pushes it a little too far, but you can trust him. You feel like he's a good guy. I never get that sense from from Michael and Pirelli. Just again, the association with Sopranos is too strong there.
2: All right, um, confession. I always thought Gil was played by Dennis Leary. Oh true story. Mm. That'd be a true good fit. Story. Yeah. Yeah, he would be good. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, uh Kurt Warner. Well done. Uh, Kurt Warner. Kurt Warner. <laughs> Kurt Warner. <laughs> Kurt Russell. Well done. Phil takes it. Getting into the top of the call sheets. Next up, Nemo. What do you got, Phil?
0: You know, again, it's tough to recast a child actor to do a voice. It's hard enough to do a child actor recasting, but it makes it even harder for a voiceover work. You basically just want someone who is plucky, has a positive outlook on the world. Who better than young Sheldon, Ian Armitage?
1: Well, again, matchup. I also went with Ian Armitage.
0: Again? What? Did we just become best friends?
1: Not just a
0: friend, a partner. Snoochie Boochies. Ah! <laughs> I'm not surprised. I figured we would match up on that one. That's just, it's too, too easy. It's low hanging fruit, but it's perfect.
2: Dory is coming up next. She will be the tiebreaker should we need it as they also seem fit to give her her own movie. She steals the show, I believe. So let's hear it. Phil, who's your Dory?
0: Uh, My Dory. And actually, I'm going to have to give a little bit of credit to Warren on this one. In our last episode of Spaceballs, he recasted uh, Amy as Dot Matrix. And I was like, and then when I was recasting this, it's like, you need a just a a, a comedian at the top of her game, great voice actor can kind of do the airy spaciness that's required of 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 the Dory character, Amy Poehler. Uh,
1: Do I get a share of this point or some shit? Are you already assuming I'm going to win? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, no, no, I'm just saying, I know I want ownership of this regardless. Okay, I win it all. I'm giving you credit. Um, Okay, so. For Dory, I went – I thought of Lisa Kudrow.
0: That's good. Man, that's really strong. Pamela
1: Adlin, uh, Isla Fisher, okay, really could play that type of uh, uh, aloofness. But I ended up going with uh, Megan Mullally. And I'm on the money with this fucking casting because not only after I recasted this, I was doing research for the the, the rest of the film, found out she was originally supposed to be in this movie. So uh, my instincts are on on this. She would be so great as Dory, hilarious. Uh, Ellen DeGeneres is fantastic, but uh, dare I say, if anyone could upstage Ellen, it would be Megan.
0: Well, I I will say a little bit further down into that rabbit hole there, it never said what character Malali was going to be. Also,
1: obviously, it would be Dory. Are you kidding? But,
0: but they wanted her to, the the they wanted her to be like her have the same voices of her, as her character from Will and Grace. And the reason she does stepped away from the film is because she didn't want to do that. So if you're wanting Megan Mullally to step in as that type of character, then no, she wouldn't have been a good fit.
1: No, nah, I'll let have her do whatever she wants. I'll trust her creative talent okay. and I would let her just do her interpretation and roll with it. Megan Mullally, well done. Yeah.
2: Tied up going into. Final casting of the night, gentlemen. Warren, the court is yours. Let's hear your argument for Marlon.
1: Marlon. Okay, so some uh, candidates here. Hank Azaria thought of Anthony Anderson. But I went with Seth MacFarlane. Probably the most talented voiceover actor working today. The guy can do it all. He's a leading man. He's a writer-director actor producer and in what family guy how many voices does he do i would just love to see him as the lead uh in a in a pixar film
0: all right my choice for marlin was paul giamatti and i do want to give a shout out to alfred brooks that he he is to, he pretty much carries the emotion of the film it's great but paul giamatti there's a certain essence of the marlin character it's A little bit of whininess, but a lot of desperation and anxiousness to get back to his son. And uh, Paul Giamatti is a very talented actor and could sell that not in the way he like he could sell that through his voice uh, with with uh, with the Marlin character in a, in a way that
1: WNBC WNBC. Well, don't pick Let me the... tell you some Paul Giamani plays angry characters and he plays affluent, powerful people. That motherfucker be running the coral reef. Okay. He'd be mayor of the shit. All right. He'd be running everything. He wouldn't be some, uh, civilian, uh, uh, no status, uh, in the ocean, uh, swimming around Paul Giamani, He's got clout. Uh, and a lot of the characters he plays, the guy's got status.
0: No, I mean, that's not true. I mean, you look at like a, a role in, um, uh was the wine movie that he did. I mean, you know, just work oh, sideways, sideways. Yeah, he's yeah. great. I'm saying he has a lot of depth as an actor to do that. I think you're kind of pitching home a little oh, bit. Hey, yeah, he
1: There's a lot of depth. I'm just okay, saying, let me finish. I just see uh, on the
0: on the extreme yeah. of both ends. Whereas you look at I mean, honestly, I I, I, I love Seth MacFarlane, but t- he just not a good fit for the Marlin role because you either to be hearing Peter Griffin or Brian. As Marlin, and you can't do thing. that. No, no you no, wouldn't. You he can't.
1: because he has voices. You wouldn't be even be able to recognize it was him. I mean, he's done Ted. You didn't think of uh, fucking Griffin when he was doing. Yes, Ted you did. He Ted sounds Duke. exactly
0: like Brian Griffin when he does Ted. Yes, he does. Or Peter Griffin. I mean, you can tell it's Seth MacFarlane. You absolutely can. You just you can't put Here, him in that. Here's, type of here's
2: the here's the thing, and hash this out for him because you've got the perfect cadence with Paul Giamatti, but you have an absolute freaking Rubik's cube with Seth MacFarlane. So, I mean, like Warren was alluding to, Seth can do whatever the hell he wants to with it because he's just that talented. Exactly. Paul Giamatti is going to bring to the table the absolute best cadence of probably any casting. Warren, what do you have to say in specificity to how you see Seth MacFarlane attacking this?
1: Yeah, Seth MacFarlane, uh, he's got the dramatic range. He's played desperate characters. Even when you see him in Arville, he plays a character that's kind of lost and has lost his way uh, in that show. Uh, And also with Seth MacFarlane, there's a classic, like, Looney Tune. Like, he has this old-school Hollywood quality to him, much like Quentin Tarantino does, where the guy knows his stuff. And I just feel like with all that knowledge and talent that he has, he's going to – there's – and with Pixar, it's such a classic, you know, Pixar Disney production. It's such a classic, uh, uh, studio to be di- working with. I just feel like he would bring a lot of those nuanced, uh, elements into his work. Uh, and, and it, it would, it would be great. Here's, here's the thing.
2: Dory is <clears throat> the sunshine, right? Marlin is the heartbeat. Dory is the emotion, but Marlon is the story. If that makes sense. Um, If I had to just pick one person to tell a story between the two, I'm sorry. Paul Giamatti. Uh, The guy's unbelievable. He's got the cadence. He's got the range. So, Phil. Yeah. Way to steal it at the end. Yeah. I am a golden
1: god. Fucking bullshit.
2: Gentlemen, recasting court is adjourned.
0: All right, fan theory time. Actually, there's not really a lot of fan theories out there. Um, no, there are several, but there no there are not a lot of good fan theories out there. Most of them are just they're too depressing to even want to talk about. Um, one is that you know Nemo is never really alive, and that it's just Marlin coping with a loss, and then which again doesn't make sense. That's just kind of it's all in his head type of thing, and I hate those type of fan theories. Uh, and then the other one is just taking the subject material too seriously. Scientifically speaking, all clownfish are hermaphrodites. They are neither male nor female. And the the way that it works is the elder of the fish in the group uh, will become, quote unquote, the female and be able to reproduce and lay the eggs. Um, so <laughs> the fan theory is that, well, Marlin doesn't really want to go after his son because it's his son. He wants to go after nemo so that he can mate with nemo and again this is just too dark dirty to what the depra- fu- dude because no. that's how clownfish really are it's just you know but you're taking it's too much for a disney pixar film so i'm choosing uh. not to cover that fan theory i'm denying all fan theories out there they all suck that's it
1: and we'll close out the episode discussing the legacy of finding nemo and when you look at the themes of the film the overarching theme is trust marlin learns to trust his son and others on, on his journey, uh, particularly, uh, we covered this in Best Scenes, the, the belly of the whale with Dory. That is that is really a critical moment for his character.
0: I mean, yeah, that, that evolution that his character takes and um, the change that they make and learning to trust not only those around him, uh, but, yeah, as a parent being able to step back and say, okay, my son can make his own or my daughter can make their own decisions and I can trust them to do that, to be there own person. That's a tough, um, that's a tough line to cross as a parent. I have, you know, with a four and a five-year-old, I have not crossed that myself yet. Uh, in some ways I have, but the fact that they were able to capture that in a Pixar film and tell that story in 100 minutes and do it in such a beautiful way is, uh, is why this film is so highly regarded and why it has such an immense replay value.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's not only a parent's struggle to accept that their child is growing, it's also a, a child's struggle for independence. Uh, so it's those two things coming together, and, and, and it's not just Marlon's uh, character that has the uh, arc and, and the changes, it's also Nemo. I mean, he grows quite a bit uh, through this the 100 minutes of the movie. Other major themes of the film, family, fear, perseverance, transformation, friendship, independence, and the moral just keep swimming, man. Mm-hmm. L-I-V-I-N. You know, don't live scared. You know, you, you, you hope for the best. You, you give it your best and, and you, and you hope for the best.
0: No, it's true. There are the, the, those elements there too. I never really thought about it from the kid's perspective of, of the, of, you know, learning to be independent. And I think about those moment of def, moments of defiance early on where he, you know, smacks the boat and, but in also true parental fashion, it's like he telling you the parent is saying something for a reason because instantly after is when he gets captured <laughs> by the scuba diver. So, but you know that's a hard lesson to learn. You know, typically, you're not going to get you know punished so severely for you know crossing your your parent in that way. Uh, But, yeah, I always look at it from the parents' perspective when I watch movies like that now. It's just like never connect emotionally with the kid. I'm just like.
1: Yeah, I'm still emotionally connecting with the kid. So that's. uh, (laughs) We bring different perspectives to the pod. Yeah. All right. Now, the franchise, they did have a sequel short, uh, Finding Nemo's Submarine Voyage in 2007. And then finally a feature film sequel, which we've mentioned several times, Finding Dory, uh, that was released in 2016, also had a video game. Uh, Finding Nemo in 2003 that was uh, released along with the film. This is back when movie studios still had that movie tie-in video game, and I think it's just been proven those don't work. You can have a video game that takes place in the movie universe that you're doing, but to have a movie based on the movie where you're playing supporting characters, uh, they've never been hits.
0: Well, I'll tell you why Uh, it's so hard to do is that the timelines for a movie and for a video game a quality AAA title video game are very, very different. Um, and it's going to be, you know, you want them to line up and sync in some way um, so that they can number one, tie in together thematically and with the story. Uh, but number two, also release are near the same time. And that's just, it's just too difficult to coordinate that. There's the two different teams of individuals, you know, two different types of schedules, the mm-hmm. problems that you're going to encounter. I mean, you could have it ready, and then the studio's like, "Yeah, you know what? We're gonna push it back." It's just like then, you know, so it's just it's too tough to match up. That's why they don't do it anymore. It's a big investment as well.
1: Pop culture connections with the movie: it's referenced in Monsters Inc., Scrubs, Fifty First Dates, Barbershop Two, Happy Feet, and Jeopardy. Which I think that's always a certification of pop cultural uh, lexicon status is when you when you make it on Jeopardy in some form or fashion.
0: <laughs> There's two ways. So that you could that you achieve that that got that, that I would look at them as equals as far as achieving that status in pop culture one is being on jeopardy and the second is having weird owl to a parody of your song if you're a musician <laughs> but like those two once you were those different mediums yeah that's that's that that puts you in the zeitgeist.
1: And for a film that, in all, that isn't considered that old, it already has 534 connections in total. Uh, it's spoofed and parodied in The Simpsons. Who wants to sleep with the fishes? Because I brought this Finding Nemo bedspread. Cinderella story and the 2004 Oscars, which uh, was the year it was nominated. So you know they probably put together some uh, Billy Crystal uh, type Oscar <laughs> parody of it.
0: Okay, I wanted to say this, that, yeah, it doesn't seem like it's that old. Maybe it's because Dory, Finding Dory came out a few years ago, but you know, at the time of recording this, the film is 17 years old. It doesn't feel like 2003 was 17 years ago, but to put it in perspective, in 2003, 17 years prior to that was 1986. And for some reason, that gap just seems between 86 and Now, For a
1: film to hold an elite status like this does for what it is, it is a young film. And I think that's fair to say for an animated feature, it's it's on the it's on the short list of great animated movies.
0: Uh, yeah, and also I'd say the quality of the film and the computer animation looks a lot better from you know looking back to two thousand and three now than if you were in two thousand and three and looking at computer animation eighty six. So the, I'd say the 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 quality of the animation itself helps you know keep it fresh and doesn't look as dated
1: not only being a great film but one of the reasons we're doing it in season three is because it has one of the highest replay values of an animated feature uh it it has such a high replay value this is literally a film that you can watch over and over again and a lot of people have
0: i have yeah i have yes hundreds of times no question and i'm not exaggerating because my kids i mean there was a phase where that's all they watched, and even now we'll still revisit it from time
1: to time. I remember them having a run where they were really loved sharks. They, they were, that's all they wanted to yeah, do. Yeah, the is
0: run is now. They, they still were... love sharks. <laughs> it's oh, okay. <laughs> all right,
1: fair enough. <laughs> um, and Pixar has a tendency to do this, kind of their trademark, is Easter eggs in their films. Uh, if you pay attention closely, there's, I only counted four. I'm sure there's more than that, but I saw Buzz Lightyear uh, on the floor. Uh, at the dentist office, once Nemo's in the uh, fish tank. Uh, of course, you have the A113 license plate. Andy's mom from Toy Story, her license plate on her vehicle, uh, and I believe all the license plates in all the Pixar films have. Well,
0: I, I, I will say this: so the A113 is it's it's the it's the most widely known Easter egg. It's in all the Pixar films uh, because that is the classroom where I think a lot of them uh, would take an animation, either at Caltech or. Uh, some school out west, I, I forget the name of, but the the A one one three isn't on a license plate, and this film is on the scuba diver's camera when he's taking a picture. You have the pizza planet truck that is outside of the dentist office is another Easter egg in Finding Nemo. The Buzz Lightyear toy, which you mentioned, is in the uh, the waiting room uh, in the yeah, dentist office. Right, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. you have a Mr. Mister. Incredible comic book that one of the kids read. Yeah, that, that
1: was one I saw too, yeah.
0: Yeah, which of course the Incredibles wouldn't come out until the following year in 2004, the, the Brad Bird film. Um, Boo from Monsters Incorporated, her mobile that she had in her room was also hanging from the ceiling in the dentist's office. It's the same one. Mike hmm. Wazowski has a cameo in the credits. You see him swimming along the screen at the end. And then last but not least... Luigi from Cars um, has a cameo. He drives by the dentist <laughs> office. It's like a blink and you miss. You only see yeah. part of it. That film would not come out for another three years.
1: And that kind of ties into where we said Nemo first-minute appearance as a stuffed toy in Monster Zeke two years before the release of Finding Nemo. Is They're always hinting at future films and future characters in their current Pixar movies. And Finding Nemo is one of the great Pixar films. Uh, It's in their Hall of Fame. Uh, They have a lot of theme park attractions for Finding Nemo. Uh, Eight different Finding Nemo attractions on Disney properties around the world. Uh, They were opened from 2004 to 2007. All-time list for Finding Nemo in two thousand eight, American Film Institute ranked it number ten on the greatest animated film ever list, uh, AFI's top ten list, and in two thousand sixteen, in a BBC poll, the film was voted number one of the hundred greatest motion pictures since two thousand.
0: And there is one uh, not so great thing that came about from the movie's success and popularity, and it was the popularity of clownfish as pets, uh, which you would think that you know if you watch the movie, it kind of. Shows you how you shouldn't keep fish as pets. I guess, you know, fish from the ocean as pets and and really in general. Uh, But ironically enough, people became so obsessed with clownfish that they just kind of disregarded that theme of the movie. And it's reported that the uh, popularity of clownfish and demand for them tripled after this movie came out, unfortunately
1: not surprising
0: uh, so i think it's kind of curbed since then but you know yes clownfish are very popular and have been since finding nemo but i i don't think it's as, as pets it's is as popular as it used to
1: be well, well what about the uh the uh, uh regal blue tag man doria that, that rise up in sales
0: i'm not sure about that I, I saw the thing about clownfish uh and i can see why i think um that maybe a the blue tangs are a little bit harder to get a hold of maybe
1: And Mark Cairo of the Chicago Tribune summed it up best when he said, quote, Finding Nemo and its Pixar predecessors tap into the shared genre among the kids and adults that delights in imagination-engaging, eye-tickling, wit-filled storytelling. You connect to these sea creatures as you rarely do with humans in big-screen adventures. The result? A true sunken treasure, unquote.
0: That is going to do it for this episode of Replay Value. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, and if you love what you hear, take the time to rate, review, and share with a friend. You can visit us on our website, replayvaluepod.com, and follow us on Twitter, at replayvaluepod. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every other Tuesday, and we'll see you then. Bye!
2: a Waldo Pickles production.